Listener supported. WNYC Studios. From WNYC Studios, I'm Brian Lehrer. This is my Daily Politics Podcast. It's Monday, June 19th. Happy Juneteenth Independence Day. It's the third year of the official federal holiday after the Juneteenth National Independence Day Act was passed by Congress and signed by President Biden in 2021. You probably know that. So no mail delivery today, no stock market, all or most of the federal holiday stuff. Most but not all states have made this an official state holiday Florida, of course, Florida. I'm looking at you. Also, South Carolina, Arizona, Kansas, Vermont, and New Hampshire, unusual for the Northeast, and others, too, that have not made it an official state holiday, those according to a map from the Pew Research Center. And we'll assume most of you know the top-line basics, right? Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation in 1863. I'm assuming you all know that. The Confederate Army of Robert E. Lee surrendered in April 1865. But in Texas, of course, Texas, elements of the Confederate military kept fighting anyway, and it took until June 19th of that year for that all to really end with the arrival of Union troops in Galveston Bay, Texas, and the announcement that around 250,000 enslaved people in that holdout state would be freed and that the slaveholders were required to free them, although from what I've read, some held out even then. So we'll try to go deeper than those top-line basics to not be repetitive uh, around what you already know about Juneteenth and talk about some history, some current context, take some calls to share facts and feelings, and hopefully learn some new things for many of us along the way in a conversation now with arguably the single best person in the world to have such a conversation with. It's Pulitzer Prize-winning Harvard historian Annette Gordon-Reed, who released the book on Juneteenth in 2021 and was already renowned for her books Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemings, An American Controversy, and The Hemingses of Monticello, or do they say Monticello, An American Family. And she's from Texas to boot. Professor Gordon-Reed, I imagine there are many places you could be on this Juneteenth morning, so we're very grateful that you've agreed to give some of that time to our listeners. Welcome back to The Brian Lehrer Show and to WNYC. Oh, I'm always happy to be on your show. I listened to your show before I started writing. So, yes, I'm glad to be here. I'm touched to hear that and honored. You've said that Texas kept fighting after Lee surrendered in part because state leaders saw slavery as vital to their future. Was that an economic thing? They had no vision of a functioning Texas economy without 250,000 people and their future offspring in chains? Well, apparently not. Uh, When Texas became a republic, it was committed to the institution of slavery. Oh, even before then, it was committed to the institution of slavery. And many of the people who came to Texas from Georgia and Alabama came at the start of the war and during the war, sort of a, a step ahead of the United States Army to try to, and to bring their slaves so that they could kind of hold out. So these are the really, really most recalcitrant people who are there. And, you know, they were never, in their mind, defeated in battle uh, in their on their own territory. So they were very, very recalcitrant folks. And they didn't no. have a vision. It, they just thought that this was the way things were supposed to be. 
It makes me think of the question, did racism produce slavery or did slavery produce racism? There's a line of thought, as I'm sure you know, that enslavement came first out of sheer power and racism, the myth that people from Africa were inferior, came as a justification that what they were doing was okay. Is that a question you have any research or opinions about? Well, you know, that's the so-called origins debate. And, you know, it's been going on for a very, very long time. You know, I think the difficulty is that slavery, slavery, African chattel slavery existed not just in the in the Atlantic world, but into the East and the Middle Eastern world. What I'm getting at is that people had known for many centuries how African people were used um, in a labor economy and a slave labor economy. So I, I tend to, I tend more towards the racism was there to begin with. These are the kinds of people that this could be done to. And certainly slavery reinforces it, but I understand uh, the argument on the other side as well. Hmm. What was the white resistance like? I mean, just because a union general comes and makes a statement about emancipation, that doesn't make all the slaveholders (laughs) just accept it and say, I get it, you're free to go, right? And now everything's all peachy keen. No, uh, the resistance took the form of violence. Uh, I talk a little bit about this in my book, that people were, as far as Juneteenth goes, people were punished, physically punished for celebrating. There was an instance of a group of of dozens of people who were whipped in a town for daring to celebrate um, the news of of emancipation. But all throughout the South, anytime, you know, free people after uh, slavery was over, anytime free people seemed to act in a way other than totally subservient, they were met with violence. By people, there were instances where someone didn't take their hat off, and the person shot him and killed him, and nothing happened. So, if you could imagine people who had power, had social power, had guns and so forth, who tried to bring things back as near to slavery as possible, they used violence and whatever means they could in order to to do that. And we have a history question that's already come in. So, Vic on the Upper West Side, you're on WNYC. Thank you for calling in. Yeah, hi. Uh, good morning. Uh, might uh, Professor Gordon really, uh, just clarify the dates? Um, because uh, the emancipation was in 63, 1863, and Juneteenth was uh, two and a half years later, 1865. However, the telegraph and the railroad predated both, arriving in Galveston and Houston around 1860. Does that mean, despite the mass communication of the day, all the officials of Galveston kept the news of the emancipation from the enslaved for two and a half years? No, they didn't keep it. No, they did not keep it from them. That's a story that has come up that people didn't know. Uh, They knew uh, this was in papers. It was everywhere. And most of the things that white people knew about what was going on in the world, um, their African-American slaves knew, too, (laughs) because they lived intimately with them. Some of them were literate. But even if they didn't, people talked about this stuff. So it wasn't about the knowledge. It's that it's not until after the Confederates finally, uh, the, the Army of the Trans-Mississippi surrenders that Granger is able to go in and make this pronouncement. So it's not really about knowledge. You know, we used to say when we were growing up that uh, it's sort of almost as a joke, uh, a bad joke, a poor taste joke, that 
you know, white enslavers kept the news away from blacks so that they could get in another couple of harvests. But that really wasn't it. It's just that they knew about it, but there was nothing to be done. There's no way to enforce that until mm-hmm. Granger and the troops, the United States Army troops, can come in and take control of Texas. And even well, then, they didn't take control of all of Texas. It's most of this in places where the army was not present. There were people who were still keeping um, enslaved people in bondage even after that particular day. Vic, thank you for your call. Well, were white Texans different in their response to any meaningful degree from white people in the more eastern southern states, like the slave states in the original 13 colonies, Virginia, Georgia, the Carolinas, or say in Florida, which joined as a slave state in the same year as Texas, I believe, 1845? Mm -hmm. You know, Texas had a reputation for being especially hard. The people who had been involved in the Freedmen's Bureau, which had been set up in various places after uh, after the war was over to help um, the former slaves into citizenship, into society, said that Texas was really rough, that they'd never encountered a place as rough as that. And I, I you know, I, I don't have any reason for that other than its reputation as a, a as especially violent place. And as I said before, the kinds of people who came to Texas, many of them rushed into Texas you know, during the war, as the war is progressing, progressing and just before, to try to and bring their slaves with them to try to make a last stand. These were people who were uh, the real dead enders. So it, it had a reputation for violence out in, outside of slavery, outside of the question of slavery, and it showed itself in their response to emancipation. So it was a tougher place. We think I of mainly as Mississippi as the toughest place, but yeah. there were a lot of lynchings in Texas as well. Uh, but it's, it part comes from what I talk about in the book, how people focus on Texas as a Western state much more than a Southern state. So you think about cowboys and all of that and not the fact that this was a plantation society. So backing up a bit, Juneteenth happened, June 19th, 1865. And what happened to the formerly enslaved people in Texas on June 20th? Did 250,000 people with, in many cases, little money or formal education or skills, besides the ones they learned as enslaved people to work on those farms, even once it was enforced that uh, they needed to be freed, did they just walk off those farms to they didn't know what? Or what happened on, you know, metaphorically speaking, June 20th and 21st in 1865? Well, most of them, I mean, the general order number three, which was... uh, uh, Granger's order that sort of effectuates what has become Juneteenth uh, encouraged them to stay on the farms and work for their uh, former enslavers as employees, that, that they would exist in a state of absolute equality, but they would also be in a employer-employee situation. And what happens afterward, the, the army begins to set about uh, facilitating these contracts. And then when the F- Freedmen's Bureau were set up, that was one of the main things that they did besides, you know, marrying people, helping people find, you know, family members and 
educating people, setting up schools and so forth, was to sort of manage work contracts um, between enslaved people and, and uh, former enslaved people and their former enslavers uh, in places where there was no army, where there was no federal official. A lot of times people, you know, their records are people who are kept in bondage until the, the army could go through and actually take full control over Texas. And it was mm. not June 20th and 21st when that happened. But yeah. the main thing is that the army helps and the Freedmen's Bureau later on begins to help them set work contracts um, between their the people who had enslaved them before. Or they a lot of people moved. They tried to encourage them to stay in place. And some people did stay in place, but other people moved around and tried to find work other, other places. Some went out west, started out west. Uh, but the bulk of them are remain, remained in place and had to rely on the Freedmen's Bureau and their and their districts in, in various throughout Texas to try to help them order their lives. Professor Gordon-Reed, um, I, I know, um, you know, that before your book on Juneteenth, you were already a very prominent historian for your books on Sally Hemings and her family and Hemings and Thomas Jefferson. That's 18th century Virginia for the most part. Juneteenth is focused more on 19th century Texas. I'm curious if something about your Sally Hemings and Jefferson research led you to want to focus on Juneteenth as a point of continuity, or if they were really two different areas of historical interest for you, tied only by the fact that uh, slavery was a theme. Uh, they are totally separate. <laughs> I never, if somebody had told me four years ago <laughs> that I would be talking to you about a book that I'd written about Juneteenth, uh, I would say that's crazy. Hmm. Uh, it, it's not, you know, I did do a book about Andrew Johnson, which the American president series, which brought me into the mid 19th century, but I don't really like writing about this time period because it's so, I mean, slavery is depressing, but this is, it's an infuriating um, moment because there was such a moment of moments of high hopes and you know i know what's going to happen <laughs> they're going to yeah. they're going to be dashed this was a moment when the country could have gone in a particular direction and it did You're not go in that direction talking about reconstruction just after the civil war right yeah after the civil war the mid 19th century that part of it is just a disappointment to me so it's not, it's an area that i don't i didn't have a thought that i would go into but it was really my editor bob Weil, who has wanted me to do a history of Texas, a big book about Texas, who agreed with me that I might do and suggested that I do something small and short. And I fastened on, on, on Juneteenth as a way of talking about the history, but also do a broader, a short look at Texas itself. Mm -hmm. um, because people are always asking me, you know, What's the story with Texas? I'm always try having to explain the state in some way. And I thought that this was a way to perhaps do that, to remind people about Texas's southern roots and that a lot of the things that we see coming out of here now, the fights over history, fights over the substance of, of history classes and book banning, all that kind of thing, grows out of the sort of racial dynamic that exists in the state, which was born of you know, it's history with slavery. 
Well, some people call the moment that we're in today a third reconstruction. It was started and stopped by resistance after the Civil War, started and stopped by white resistance after the Civil Rights era, maybe starting again today, maybe with the killings of Trayvon Martin and Michael Brown and George Floyd and some degree of white acknowledgement that uh, those killings represent something larger and reform that takes place out of that. Do you see a kind of third reconstruction taking place today? Well, I see... I would see a third kind of redemption <laughs> taking place in the sense that, or second redemption, redemption in the sense that the backlash, I believe, against the election of Obama, Barack Obama, mm -hmm. which really signaled that the country had turned a particular corner, and that energized and engendered hope in many people. But for a number of other folks, that was a nightmare, that it was, it was not so much what he did, it's what he represented as a person of color who took, and his family, I think his, seeing his family up there too was a particular provocation to many people. That was a signal that the country was very, very different. And I think that people, there's some people who didn't like that. So what we're seeing now what we've seen is sort of a political backlash against that and a cultural one as well. It's no accident, I think, that we're fighting about, you know, you know, we're calling them cultural issues. Uh, Robin Kelly has an essay in the New York Review of Books that says it's not really a culture war. It's, it's actually a political war when you get at it. But however you characterize it, I think it's, it's a backlash against a, a particular form of black advancement, which as you've said, we've seen when, whenever that happens, there's a reaction to it. And I think we're in that now. Another question via text listener asks, I recently visited Monticello. Do you know anything about the men Jefferson hired to oversee his slaves? Were they awful or did Jefferson assure humane treatment by them during his own long absences? Uh, some of them were better than others. Uh, uh, there were some that were known to be brutal who ended up, I mean, they got fired, but the whip was endemic, basically, to the institution of slavery to make people, you know, to keep people in control. There were there are times when the whip was going to be used. So there's nothing, you know, there were instances where Jefferson tried to use incentives money rather than the whip, but the whip was not, you know, absent at Monticello. Gabriel Lilly was the, this comes to mind as, as a person who was described as especially brutal. He ends up being fired, but not just for reasons for being brutal, uh, but other enslaved, other overseers there managed without as much violence as, as, as Lilly, but violence was always a part of plantation life. Right. And I guess just to the wording of the listener's question, there's no version of enslavement that probably could be called humane. But I guess within the I know what they mean, it, it, you know, is there were there psychopaths and brutal people? Sometimes yeah. the the, um, the um, slave owners were excuse me, the overseers were Jefferson wasn't he never whipped anybody himself, but there were overseers there who one in particular that I think of who um, who was a brutal person. Well, you've written whole books on the topic, but is there a sort of radio interview length answer to the 
basic question of the paradox of Thomas Jefferson. How could the person who primarily wrote the Declaration of Independence, which said all men are created equal, um, also have continued to enslave so, so many people? Well, um, because human beings are complicated creatures and we can have a set of intellectual beliefs that we don't have uh, the emotional capacity to live by, you know? Um, I don't think he saw, I think he thought slavery was wrong. I have no, I think he knew that, but he had no inclination to disrupt his life in a way or to go go against the people in his immediate community and his family to try to make that point. And some people did. And most people who did in Virginia were people who were under the influence of religion, you know, the passion of religion. He was not. <laughs> mm-hmm. So he didn't even have that as a, as a spur to make him do what I, I believe he knew would, would have been the right thing to do. Professor of History at Harvard, winner of the Pulitzer Pulitzer Prize and a MacArthur Genius Grant, among many other things, Annette Gordon-Reed, author of On Juneteenth, author of Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemings, an American Controversy, author of The Hemingses of Monticello, an American Family, and more. Thank you so much for joining us on this Juneteenth, 2023. We really appreciate it, and I enjoyed the Oh, thank you. Thank you for inviting me. I always enjoy it. Thank you. Brian Lehrer, A Daily Politics Podcast, is an excerpt from my live daily radio show, The Brian Lehrer Show, on WNYC Radio, 10 a.m. to noon Eastern Time, if you want to listen live at WNYC.org. Thanks for listening today. Talk to you next time.